Thank you very much, Brian. It was nice of Brian to remind me of that date. Um, it, I, uh, it did occur to me, actually, you might be interested, that, but uh, I was in King's College Choir. That was in Cambridge. That was the reason that I sang the once in Royal David City. And David Wilcox was director of music, a marvelous man. And he, he um, would kind of find the, 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 the boy that he wanted to sing the solo and kind of go through a, a dry run. So you would stand in the King's College Chapel and um, he would say, imagine that all those seats are full of cabbages. So that's your congregation or your audience, you know, so that you're not overwhelmed by all these people looking at you. And so I sang the once in Royal David City and he said, that's fine, you can do it on, on that particular Christmas. It was 1966, I think it was. And it's a, it's a very wonderful service. I don't know whether you've heard it. I think they carry it on NPR, actually. Uh, yeah. And um, uh, anyway, you, you possess round, and then in the middle, all the people are standing around, and, and everyone is in a line. And there's a little light which has... Um, is it white and red? And he says, when it turns to red, then it's live. So you have to stand there look, looking, and uh, they read the news at 3 o'clock on BBC News for two minutes. And then he says, and now we go um, live to the, college of, uh, the chapel of King's College, Cambridge, and uh, we'll see, uh, uh, where the, in the darkened light the boy sings once in Royal David City. Well, the light goes, before the light goes red, David Wilcox had this, this, this funny pitch pipe thing with, a, with a, a thing at the top that you move around. They're incredibly unreliable, if you've ever used one. And he, he would make you blow it to hear the note and then make you sing the note, the start note, because the organ doesn't come until verse 3. And when the organ comes in, you hope that you've started in the right key. <laughs> so he made me blow the note, and it went... <laughs> so he said, give, give me the... Give me the. So I gave it to him, he went... <laughs> so he said, this is the note, this is the note. He said, sing it back to me. And I went, <laughs> so nervous. And anyway, uh, um, I sang the thing, and, and it was in tune, which was a, a triumph. Of, and and how, however, how, however it was in tune, I never know to this day. But I can, um, I'm sure anyone who's sung that solo, uh, it's, in, it's in G major, it starts on D, and then you sing, Mary was on E. Well, that note is like climbing up the north face of the Eiger, that E. It's kind of so hard to sing. It feels like the highest note ever. And the first note feels like the lowest note ever. It's something strange about hymns. They're very, very difficult to sing. I, I remember there's a, I learned singing in England with a wonderful English singer called Robert Tier, an absolutely marvelous singer. And um, 
he always said that he, when he were, ever he went to church, he managed to sing the, the first verse okay, and then after that his voice packed up. And I can quite understand that. Hymns are actually remarkably difficult to sing. Um, I don't know why, but uh, if anyone knows why, I'd be very, very delighted to know. I always used to go to my own church and sing a hymn, and people would say, that chap, you know, he's in a professional singing group, and I'd be there going, <laughs> so it was no good, really. Anyway, that wasn't what my, I was going to talk about, but I was going to talk a little, uh, I was going to talk a little bit about um, King's College Cambridge, because I, um, I realize when I come to a place like Minnesota, where you have such a strong tradition, that we all live our choral lives based on, on our experience and, and, and the processes that we've been through. And you, you, you have a very strong process here, um, and, and it's a very recognizable one to people from outside of, uh, of, um, of your state and outside of your country. And I think your, your, um, your style of singing here is, is, is very recognized and, and very much admired. And, um, and, but, but we all have our own process of where, we, of, of where we learn our music and our experience of how we do it. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about mine, because that's all I know, really, is the experience that I've had. And as one gets a little bit older, you kind of um, adopt the experience of, uh, of, of learning from what other people do. And, uh, but I was, a, I was a chorister in King's College, Cambridge, a uh, marvelous choir. Um, it's been going since, uh, since the 16th century. And there was a, there was a composer, Orlando Gibbons, who was a one of the first choristers in King's College Choir. And there were, um, they were there just to sing the services every day. Um, and of course, that tradition is mirrored all over our country, the, the, the tradition of boys' choirs. Um, which is still very strong, I have to say. And it was interesting talking to Beth Holmes yesterday, who conducted the, the women's group, uh, the, the, the anacrusis group. Uh, uh, I did the boys, and she did the, the, the young women. And, and she said, you know, that they went to, to uh, Cambridge and were so uh, blown away by the experience of hearing the boys' choirs, and was the fact that they were incorporating girls into the church system, which they've done in Britain, um, uh, was that a good or a bad thing? And, I, and I, I think for all the furore that it caused in our country that we were going to have girls singing in the cathedral tradition as well as boys, not together normally, but separately, there was a huge furore about it. And, and to be honest, it's been nothing but a positive thing because it's given girls the opportunity to have that kind of music education from a very young age. And for me, who's, I'm very fortunate to be principal guest conductor of the BBC Singers, which I've done for quite a long time now, and the professional singers who, who come up into that choir, a lot of them have been through that tradition. And the, the, the one thing that's totally clear is that they're a whole lot better at sight reading, the, the, the women, than they used to be. It always used to be the boys, the guys, who were really fantastically quick musically, and the women would be a bit slower, and it caused quite a lot of, oh, can't get it right, you know, I've got to do it again. And, you know, the English, they like to do things once, and then that's it, you know. 
Um, but, but, but the women have become much more proficient at it. But anyway, I sang in this tradition, and for, for those of you who, you, you have a, um, I, I'm not sure that you have one of the things that we do in very much in our, in our uh, choir tradition in church is the singing Psalter Psalms, singing the daily psalm um, every day. There, uh, you, you, you would have, um, in the English prayer book, there are, there are um, psalms for the day, psalms for the morning and psalms uh, for the evening. And they are the same psalms that are in the uh, King James Version of the Bible, but they're actually slightly altered for the prayer book. And um, they're sung metrically in harmony, in four-part harmony, and the, the, the quality of the, of the metric chant is, is, is a constant. It's a kind of da, 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 that's it, basically. And some, um, some people teach it by saying, um, you think of these words, you say, um, my name is John, I said my name is John, my name is John, I said my name is John. <laughs> that, 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 that's fundamentally the, the shape of, of, of a metric chant. And um, as a member of King's College Choir with, with uh, Sir, Sir David Wilcox, it was one of the things he absolutely loved doing was the psalm singing. He found something fundamentally very, very powerful in the process of um, building these chants. And it, it, it might be um, for the reason that it was a very, could be a very, very visceral experience for the choir because it, it had to be absolutely together. It was generally unconducted um, or, or just with some small gestures because actually to, to conduct speech rhythm is incredibly hard. And um, so they were generally not really conducted. So it meant that the choir had to be very, very focused on what we were all doing together. And it's been a, it's an interesting process. We, we, everyone does it in England, um, in the cathedrals, every day, but the, everyone has their different style of doing it. Some people um, stress words in different ways. Some people do, do things uh, in, a, in a completely different way or in a more structured or metrical way, um, whereas other people do it differently. It just depends. It's a very, very particular stylistic thing. And um, in fact, a lot of... Uh, um, uh, well, certainly some of the Scandinavian countries, they started doing this. I was very involved for 10 years with a, with a um, church music organization in Sweden. I, I um, worked for them for 10 years, um, involved with um, the promotion of church music, and they sang a lot of English church music translated into Swedish. And we did the psalms in Swedish, and it was absolutely fantastic, actually. It, so it, it could be done in any language, but um, it worked. Anyway, David Wilcox spent a lot of time working on the drama of the psalm. And um, it, it really focused, I think, for a lot of my contemporaries and people who went before me and afterwards, particularly with Wilcox. Um, what did you enjoy most about your singing in King's College Choir? It was the psalms, because somehow we learned about drama, color, about shape, about um, shape of words particularly. Um, 
And that, that was something which I've, I've held with me, personally, I've held that with me all my working life. And as an example, I thought I'd try and sing you a psalm in the, in, uh, without the harmony, um, in, in the way that I remember Wilcox doing it, which is probably completely not like we did it. Um, it's a bit like Chinese whispers, you remember, but I'll have a go. Um, and it's the psalm out of the deep, uh, Psalm 130, because it's got a nice chant, and I can't remember who wrote it, but it was a, it was a big tradition of writing different chants in the, in the Victorian era, particularly. But I'm going to sing you this um, and see how it goes. But this is the kind of style. Out of the deep have I called unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. O let thine ears consider well the voice of my complaint. If thou, Lord, wilt be extreme to mark what is done amiss, O Lord, who may abide it, for there is mercy with thee, therefore shalt thou be feared. I look for the Lord, my soul doth wait for him, in his word is my trust, my soul fleeth unto the Lord. Before the morning watch I say, before the morning watch. O Israel, trust in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption and he shall redeem Israel from all his sins. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So that's the kind of shape. And you realize, because the Psalms, what's great about the Psalms is they're a collection of poetry um, and writings that were assembled at completely different times and from completely different eras in history, they were um, put together as a collection of the human experience. And you've got everything in these psalms. It's got everything from um, it, it, violence, love, tenderness, hatred, everything. In fact, there was a time, but particularly in, in um, many of the more sensitive cathedrals and chapels where they took out all the, all the, um, 
the, the, the violence, particularly if you think of uh, the, the, the poem By the Waters of Babylon, We Sat Down and Wept, where you talk about you're going to fling the people against the wall and stone them. Um, they, they, you know, they, they took a lot of these verses out. But fundamentally, that, uh, this, this, this uh, book of Psalms is full of the human condition. So you get a, a complete plethora of, of experience. And musically, in the, in the singing of the Psalms, one was able to kind of create a drama. And this is, this is what we did every day. And uh, I can remember, particularly, you know, on a cold Thursday afternoon in King's College Chapel, which didn't at that time have any heating, and it, it was horrible and wet outside. And, you know, the, in Cambridge, the, the wind comes from Siberia nonstop there. Um, it was when David Wilcox would work on these psalms, you just sometimes you just wanted to kill him, quite frankly, you know, because he would just want it to be so together and so correct. You'd have to see it again and again, and you'd think, I want to go home. But actually, when you, when you look, when I look back on that, it really taught me um, so much about my experience of music, but also about language. And I think as singers and as choir directors, language is so much at the key of what we do. Um, if you... Uh, you can still find, I think, on uh, the recordings that Wilcox did of Psalms with King's College Choir. I sang on, on them all, actually. There are three volumes, two, two with Wilcox and one with Ledger. Um, and they, they're fantastic. EMI recorded them. If you, if you um, want to hear that, that kind of uh, musical experience, it's, it's, it's rather wonderful. And uh, um, from, from the point of view of choral singing, it's absolutely, it's absolutely wonderful. They're on EMI. I think you can still get them. Anyway, a little bit about English, for, for what it's worth. Um, a, a, a really boring, this is like USA Today, the little thing where it says, you know, probably the only thing, it's the only thing normally one reads is the tip for the day. But uh, there are 2,700 languages in the world, and English is probably the richest in terms of vocabulary. 400 million people have English as their mother tongue, which is absolutely amazing, number of people. And the Oxford English Dictionary lists half a million words. Shakespeare apparently used 21,000 of these words when the average of the day was 500. And apparently nowadays most of us, we have about two and a half to three and a half thousand words in our vocabulary, so, so not a huge number. And um, as you'll have noticed, you know, we all speak and sing in a different way, the people who are English speakers. Um, and that's so much to do with our uh, cultural heritage and also to do with our um, muscle memory and the, the, our behavior, the way we react, the way we are, the, the culture we live in. The, 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 it's so much to do with us as a body of people, how we live together and how the language changes. You know, we, we, we English people, we speak 
with, a lot of people say we speak with a plum in our mouth, we speak clipped, often very clipped and very light vowels, uh, and, and we sing with a lot of um, height in the, in the vowels and in the sound. Whereas uh, it's always been fascinating to me, the American people tend to speak with a lot of height in the sound and sing with a lot of depth in the, in the vowel. It's fundamentally, you have a different structure of the, of the way you approach vowels, particularly than, than we do. And I, it's interesting to me why that should be the case. But I think in our culture, um, a lot of us, a lot of our choral singers, we've grown up in, in the uh, environment of, of, uh, of a cathedral or a large church. And, and uh, we sing in big acoustics a lot of the time. Um, King's College Chapel has a, uh, actually from start to finish, has a 14-second echo. And it, it, the, the amount of echo you hear is about five seconds, but it's a, it's a huge amount of echo, and it's very, very difficult to sing in. And the style of, a, of, a, of a, a lot of English choirs who sing in those big cathedrals is to find height in the sound, because the height travels. It also brings more clarity. Um, and uh, because if you, if you sing in the, in the big, rich sound, just doesn't work in that type of building. So I think traditionally we've really gone for, the, for, for, for height in the vowels and the way we sing our sound. And it's also got a lot to do with the boy choir tradition of, of boys and male altos um, who are singing in falsetto. And many of you will know, you know, it's very, very difficult a male alto sound is a beautiful sound, but it's very, very difficult to incorporate into a choir. And we, we in our culture now, we have very much the culture in our choirs where, where most of, particularly the professional choirs, use both women and countertenors on, on their alto line. And you ask a woman, how, how easy is it to sing with a countertenor? It's really, really hard, actually. And they do find it very hard, partly because the countertenor only sings with half of the, it's kind of, it, only with half of the vocal cord. It's a kind of, it's like, um, like when you put a, uh, you, your finger on a, on a stringed instrument and you get the harmonic. That's kind of, that's the fundamental of the countertenor voice. And um, it's very, very difficult to blend with. And the countertenor voice can be extremely inflexible. Um, so a lot of the English choirs now sing with unbelievably bright sound. I've, I personally find it a bit wearing a lot of the time. You, you find this, this height that continues, um, which, which uh, in order to make that sound, you have to always find this high sound. In the BBC Singers, we have all women altos, and it's such a relief from my, my point of view. I, I say that having sung in the King Singers, where, you know, there were two countertenors, but... I, the, all the thing, only thing I can say is the guy who sings the top voice, a guy called David Hurley, he's got an incredible voice. It's quite unlike anything I've ever heard from Caltertown's point of view. But the fundamental of that group was always, it was, never, it, it was never motivated from the top. It's always motivated from the bottom. So in a sense, the, the, the result was that the, that the high voice happened as a result of the of, of what was going on underneath. Um, the, the fundamental of the sound drove the sound. Um, but the countertenor voice, very, very um, difficult to 
to blend. But I think, too, we um, traditionally, in our European um, style of, uh, of music, uh, we, we've always had a very linear approach to, to uh, our music because of, simply because of tradition. If you look at um, early English music, particularly a, a lot of the really some of the greatest English music that was ever written, um, William Byrd, Thomas Tallis. It's, it's fundamentally linear, and the lines are imitative, and um, the skill was in the way that they could construct um, big contrapuntal textures, and they would occasionally use homophony to really, f to really focus on something, but fundamentally, the it was all linear, and for a reason, because in lots of, of buildings with big acoustics, the, um, the, the linear style enabled the harmony to, to, to um, move much more slowly, because or else you, 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 you would have cacophony. So we, we, build, we build these long lines of singing, and that is very much in our tradition. Um, and uh, I, it, it contrasts, I think, with your tradition here, which is probably um, a combination of lots of things. The, 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 um, particularly the, I think of those shape note singers who sang um, hymns, homophonic, very much the homophonic style, probably in buildings with no acoustic. Um, and so the, the, the bodily, effect of everyone singing together was probably very important. I, it's only a speculation, but I, I, I think your, your choral structuring is based much more on the homophonic sound, and even in, in, the, in the spiritual, the same. It's, it's motivated by um, a, a, a vertical rather than the horizontal sound. So I think there is a, a, a fundamental difference there, and uh, you know, we also work very hard at um, the head voice and, and finding um, the, the clarity in the head voice, and that's been something um, which, which we've worked at a lot. I'm going to work um, with the choir shortly on, on a, uh, a carol, um, which I wrote, actually, which is... Uh, I'm going to work on a couple of a carol, Christmas pieces, um, one which I wrote, and I think what I would like to do is try and explain, as we try and make the process of it, how um, the structure of the text um, is, is a motivation to me, and I, and I hope to, to uh, the singers. Um, it's, it's something we, we work at a lot in our language in English, because, because the the language is such a hodgepodge of every single language there is. So as a result, we have a very impure language. Um, a lot of vowels with a lot of color in them and a, and a lot of diphthongs, huge amount of diphthongs. So, you know, if you're singing in Italian, you don't have that problem. Or you, um, but, but, you know, it, 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 it brings lots of fundamental problems about how to deal with diphthongs. And I, I just reminded me of a... Of a story that David Wilcox told about um, uh, the time he went to Birmingham, Alabama, and he was talking about diphthongs, and a woman in 
the back put up her hand and said, excuse me, Mr. Wilcox, but what's a dip thong? <laughs> and, and, uh, but it, it, is a, it is a real, it's a real thing that, that helps our language, but also makes singing sometimes very, very difficult. So I think we'll have a go at singing um, this carol called Midwinter that I wrote for children's voices. Um, and this lovely choir is going to do it, so we'll sing it through, and then we'll see if we can make some sort of process going uh, with the text. Okay.
Very good. Very well done. We've not done that before. That's the first time for me. So this is quite nice. Um, so the poem is by Christina Rossetti, well-known one, and uh, incredibly atmospheric. And um, what what I would like you to do is to sing the first two lines again. And what, and what I would like you to do is to sing when you have a consonant at the beginning of the word, like bleak, mid, m, the M, fr, at the beginning of frosty, m, at the beginning of made, m, at the beginning of moan, uh, stood hard, H, hard, as iron, water, water, a lot of consonant, stone. Okay, so sit, give a little bit more com uh, consonant. Let's try that. first consonant is, is very, very important. We often think about the last consonants, always. Get the last consonants together. Uh, you know, and you hear, thanks be to God. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually, the, the, the first consonant is the thing that fundamentally motivates the voice. It motivates in the bleep, bleh, 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 mid Winter fra, fra, fra. It, it actually gives a lot of the time, it often gives the color of the word and it gives the, um, it's often more, um, what's, what's it, onomatopoeic, is that the word? Where it, yeah, that's right, sorry, um, where, where it actually, it, it tells you what the word is by the sound of the word. Um, it, it can often do that. So what I would like you to do this time is to sing, I don't want you to breathe after midwinter, and think of the word frosty. So like this. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan, frosty wind made moan. Try. So no breath after midwinter. Okay, let's go straight in. Three, two, three, and. Think of the word frosty when you're singing the word midwinter. Okay? In two, three, and. Good. That makes a bit more sense of that, I think. And I'll tell you why. When we speak to, to each other, we generally, when we say a sentence, we don't run out of breath. Because fundamentally, inside, we know what we're going to say, hopefully. Um, we, we, we basically internalize our thought before we say, say it, and then we say it, and we inflect it in such a way that people, hopefully, will understand. 
And so we take that all on board in terms of the, the way that we say the sentence. And I'm talking to you now, and I'm not taking a breath. And actually, if I needed to, I would probably run out of breath if I thought about it earlier. But you don't run out of breath because you have it in your mind that that's the sentence or that's the shape. And um, so they don't need to breathe. And actually, if they don't breathe, they suddenly understand a little more intuitively that breath is something that works intuitively if you let it. Um, and and I, I think in singing, we, we need to do that because because we are fundamentally interpreting a composer's view of that, those words. If you gave this, those words to six different people, everyone would, would write it differently. They would, they would have different inflection, and everyone probably would be right. But it would be just the way of finding that, that shape and that natural shape. We all, when we all composers and performers, we all react um, to the information that we have inside us coming from our experience. And so we all have something different to give from that point of view. And you have to find what that is. But I think um, that, that uh, what, thinking of the frosty when we sing midwinter, it, get, it helps you get over the problem of what happens at the end of midwinter. Because if you sing, in the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan, you, by, by thinking of the word frosty, you're immediately taking care of the, how the, the end of midwinter. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind. You're making the, the note move towards it. it. It's probably, it's like we have a phrase, taking coals to Newcastle which is where, Newcastle, uh, where coals are mine, is mined. Um, you, you know all this already, but it's quite good to be reminded of the fact that the forward shape and shape of the words are what, are what give us um, our own sense of singing, but it also helps communicate the text. Let's try the second phrase now, um, and the same. No breath after iron. So th you've got to think of the word water when you're singing iron. Okay? Let's see. Let's do that. Earth stood hard. Earth, two, three, Could you make more of the consonant w? There's a lots in w. There's there's, there's lots of diphthong in there. Wa wa water like, water like. Just sing water like and make the beginning of the of the consonant go water like, water like, so that it goes out there. Okay, try and that's it. That's it. There's much more colour in that. Now sing the whole phrase and sing it. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Okay, try. Earth, two, three, and. Very good. Can you just sing? A stone, a stone, 
Excellent, excellent. I think a lot about, with, with um, in my experience of singing, how you look for perspective within your singing. If you sing, in the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan, stood hard. You think, gosh, that's nice, but I didn't get a word of that. You know, it, um, I, I found when I went to see James Taylor, who I love, that shows the, my age as well, I'm sorry, but I love James Taylor. I went to see him in Birmingham, and he's a pretty decent singer. Right? He can still sing pretty well, and he's 63 or something like that. But um, one thing I learned, certainly in the King singers, but also in, in watching pop singers, and I've always enjoyed watching pop singers because, all right, they, a lot of them sing um, very self-taught naturally. A lot of them don't now because they get lessons. I mean, George Michael, has, uh, he's a, I've never particularly liked his voice, but he's a good singer, and he's always, always had lessons, re absolutely regularly. He knows how to sing. And, uh, you know, and you listen to Sting when, he, when he, he sings, well, when he was singing The Police. I mean, he could sing up to top C, top C sharps, all in full voice. And, and um, you hear his voice now, it's darkened, and it's, much, it's a very, very interesting voice, I think, his voice. But they sing completely naturally, but a, a lot of the time, it's about um, in, inflecting the line. How do I inflect th this you know, line so that, uh, so that people are going to understand it? And often it's something we don't do. In our, we, th we think about beauty of sound. And beauty of sound's fine, but actually beauty of sound gets a bit boring after a time. I, I, you need to hear ugly sounds often, because often the music demands it. You need to hear thin sounds. You need to hear big sounds, wide sounds. You need to hear the whole palette of sound. And I think um, that the inflection of perspective is quite an interesting one. In the bleak midwinter, winter, where, where you... Where you where you allow the note to fly, or the beginning of the note to fly, so that, so that it's, a, it's a shifting shape. Um, and I think it, it, it can be very liberating as a singer to think um, of, of, uh, of getting the sound a bit further than you might imagine. Um, I would like you now to put down your copies, if you wouldn't mind, because you can sing. And I would like you to sing those first two lines again. Sorry, it's just these two lines, but have a go again. And what I want you to do is um, look, at, look at the balcony there, and just, just, there's a seat right in the middle. Sing to that seat. That doesn't mean you've got to sing right out to it, but you're drawing that seat into, into what you're, you're, you're doing. Sometimes you'll have to go out a bit. Sometimes you've got to draw them to you. Okay, see if you can do that. Let's have the we'll have the introductions. I'll see.
Can you? Nice little girl. She's the youngest. This one. Nice. Stand with your hands at your sides. All stand with your hands at your sides and feel strong. Feel, just feel good and strong. And all look at the same level. Look at, look at that seat up there. They look really good, don't they? They do look really good. I'll tell you what it is. They look focused, but they look confident. And they, there are differing heights of people, but the funny thing is, when everyone is focused, you don't notice. Um, you know, I, I was laughing. I went to hear the King Singers recently, the chap in the end like that, and then there's another guy, the next guy to him, that is like that. And you, and you, you don't notice it because they focus in the same way. And I, I think that's really good. Now think of when, when you sing to these folks, think of that you're telling them a story, but you're putting it out there. In the bleak midwinter, you, you can do it soft. In the bleak midwinter, but it needs, think it outside. Okay? See if you can. Um, I, I remember seeing, when I was in the King Singers, we, we went a couple of times to Crystal Cathedral and we sang on the Hour of Power, which was, which was something else. But um, part of the deal was you had to listen to Robert Schuller preach. So you had to go and sit in the congregation and listen, and boy, was he powerful. And um, I remember he... he, he uh, he, they gave a, uh, he gave a thing on tithing or something like that. It was, and he was really reaching out to them because he, boy, does he need that money. But <laughs> anyway, he went, he went, and the Lord will strike you down. <laughs> but the great thing was that what you listened to more was the will strike you down bit. Because actually the perspective of and the Lord is about there, there in front of him, and the will strike you down is kind of 10 feet in front of it. The soft, it's like a stage whisper. Actually, the, the soft is further out than the, than the loud. It's kind of, I suppose it's, if, if I... I'm useless at science, but it, it, it be, it's something about internal balance, because when you sing, you keep a certain amount for yourself, but you also, um, there's got to be a certain amount out there, and it's got to balance at different levels, but the soft is much, much further out in the perspective. So I'd like you to sing that softer, but try and get it to still be out there. Okay, can you do that? Try again. Thank you. 
what it also does, and I, I noticed it there, it animates the face. In the bleak, in the bleak, in the bleak, when you're thinking out there, it animates the face because you have to. And it, it's quite exciting, actually. Now I'd like you to sing the next phrase and think it bigger. Snow had fallen, like it did this morning. Snow had fallen. Mm. Try. One, two, three, and. What I liked what they did there. They went, snow had fallen, snow on snow. And it sounded like one sentence, even though there was a break in the middle. They, it was beautifully musical. Thank you. Um, will you sing the second phrase and then go to that sound now? So sing from Earth Stood Hard as I Am, and then when you sing snow on, uh, think of a bigger perspective, okay? Uh, earth stood hard, two, three, and... singing, lovely singing. I'd like to ask you something else now, and I'm going to ask these. Um, I, I um, was always, personally, I, I, I was always an a cappella guy, and when I started writing um, children's music, I did a lot with piano, simply because um, it was demanded. And I love the piano, actually, but I, I'm, John Rutter said to me, he said, I hate the piano. I hate, uh, you know, as a, and, and I, I, I can see what he means. It can be utterly colorless. Um, it doesn't matter about the player, anything like that. It can be. It just depends on the perspective that the piano has. Now, I believe the piano, if you've got a piece with, with um, voices and piano, the piano is a really important aspect of the piece. And it, and it helps give the perspective again and the sound for the text. Um, I, I was a, uh, I worked uh, in my early 20s as an orchestrator for the BBC and I loved doing that and what, because what was marvellous is that I, I would orchestrate the stuff and then it would get played straight away and you'd go in the studio and you'd hear it and you'd say, that was not very good. Um, I'll do that next time. Oh that, oh, that sounds rubbish. I'll have a go at that. And, uh, so, it was a very, very quick learning process, but I've always thought in terms of instruments when I hear the piano. I think it, 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 it helps me anyway. But I think the piano, is a, it, it's extremely important. So what I wanted to ask these guys, uh, Susan, if you could just play the beginning, just the, just the opening few bars, maybe. Uh, just play it as, as you know. 
What, 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 do, you, what do you hear there? What instruments do you hear there? Anybody? What do you hear? Yeah. The piano. <laughs> Marvellous. You're absolutely right. Good. Marvellous. Do you hear any... Who, who here plays an instrument? Do you play, who plays violin? Who plays flute? Who plays anything else? Any, anything else? Cello? No? What do you play? Piano. Harp. Cool. Piano. French horn. Clarinet. Fantastic. So, uh, loads of different instruments. So, if, when you hear that again this time, what um, instruments like, uh, not the piano, like clarinet or oboe, or what do you hear it, when Susan plays that? Just have a just have a play again. What do you hear? Yeah. A flute, very good. Chimes, a harp, excellent. You forget. Violin, yeah, excellent. So light instruments with clarity. Can you play now um, bar 11, please, Susan? you hear there? Violin? Bass? So what instrument might that be as a matter of interest? Any? any? Cello. Cello, nice, yeah. Anyone else? Clarinets, yeah. Pardon? Brass, yeah. So maybe a horn. Do you hear a horn there maybe? Could be? Yeah. So in terms of um, the beginning is light and hopefully um, got a lot of clarity. And then when they sing Snow Had Fallen, it's got a sense of another sound, maybe strings and a bit of horn, um, things that are really helping, helping the support. Because fundamentally, in, and it is a, a, a real um, challenge with upper voices, because if you ever record upper voices, you get so much energy at the in the top level of sound all the time. And it, it can be actually quite wearing for the listener because you just get drawn into the same um, sound area the whole time within the spectrum. You have to create um, lower end frequencies as well. So it's very important that you react to what you hear in the sound of the piano. Does that make sense? So when you hear the, 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 the bigger, wider sound, react to that with the way that you sing. Okay? Um, I'd like to go on now. Our God, heaven cannot hold him. Our God. Okay, here we go. Ooh, one, two, and. a little louder, please, Susie. What do, what do you hear in that sound? Yeah. Acoustic guitar. That's interesting. What else? Anyone? It's much heavier, isn't it? 
I wrote in the music here, pesante, and that's Italian for heavy. So it's got some heaviness. So you need that in the voice as well. Our God him cannot hold him. And the word hold is very important here because it's actually the word that, that um, it's an embracing sound. So that, uh, that, uh, it's an embracing feeling. So that's the feeling within the, uh, the way that the, the, the piece is written, hopefully. So let's try that. Our God, heavier. Think of heavy. One, two, and. Well done. The H is really hard because it slightly throws you offline. Our God him cannot hold him. Ho, ho. But it needs quite a lot of effort. So tr try. Go. Ho, ho. Hold. And there's another one as well. It's um, heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. And we want he say heaven. Flee. 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 Good. When. When is better than when. When. It's got an H in it. Say when. Marvellous. You're good. So let's sing from Our God, Heaven Cannot. Our God. One, two, and. That sounded like our God heaven cannot hold him. Hold. Our God heaven. And, and our God needs a little bit more. Just the, begin, the G at the beginning. Deep. One, two, and. Very good. Okay, in the bleed. Four, two, three, and. Good. You've got a, um, it's a, a stable place, not a stable place. It's like I have Josh Groban's Christmas album. If you've heard that, it, you, well, I, it's got Magdalen College Choir on it, and. Um, uh, from Oxford, and they sing beautifully, except it's all completely out of tune. They've obviously taken the, the, um, the, the you know, tape across to England, and uh, whoever's, uh, you know, it, it, if, if you hear it, it's quite interesting. They sing very, very well, but not quite in the same key as the track. But, but there's a, I'm trying to think who it is, um, uh, I think it might be, there's a country singer on it called Faith Hill, I think it is, and, and uh, she's got a lovely voice, actually, but she goes, in fields where they lay keeping, she breathes after they, in fields where they 
lay keep and you think uh, I, it kind of it, it just and she sings it beautifully but so we don't want in the bleak midwinter a stable place stable place suffice because actually the place is um, the a stable place it's a stable place not a stable place a stable place okay so don't breathe after stable in the bleak from there one two three and Say Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ. The Lord God. The Lord God Almighty. Jesus Christ. Just that. The one, two, and the I've found, as someone who, I've found singing always really hard. It's, it's really hard, and my voice is shot now. I, I used to be able to sing, I was explaining to a chap who picked me up this morning, who's obviously a very fine tenor, and, but it's like running. You've got to keep doing it to, to keep the muscle going, you know, and you can keep, I find I can keep going now for about five minutes, and then it all packs up. But it's, it's really, singing is really hard, and I, I always found it hard. I didn't have one of those easy voices that, that went through the, all the, the um, points in your voice where you have to be very careful with it. I, um, I, I never found that easy. And um, it wasn't until I sang in the King Singers, actually, that I, I started singing a lot more in, near my falsetto, and it really helped me um, uh, learn a bit more about how to open my voice. And I, if people who work here with boys, that working with the falsetto is quite, it's quite good. You feel, you, you find areas in your voice and you find a bit more relaxation and you find it's suddenly a bit more easier to mix your voice. I did a lot of that when I sang in King Singers because uh, I, I just couldn't do it any other way. And you had to get near the sound of the, of the falsetto voice. And, but I found that helped me a huge amount. But singing is really hard. But I've found working with young people, which I, uh, young singers, which I ended up doing by default, really, and I, I love it. But um, it's, it's not easy to teach singing because singing's a hard thing to understand. But I think the thing to do is to teach music, is to teach how to be musical and how to shape. Because then you you learn a much more intuitive way of thinking about your voice. And I think for a young singer, if they feel engaged with, with the music in a way that they understand it um, intuitively, then you suddenly think uh, that then, then singing becomes much more real for a, for a young singer, I think. That's been my experience. And uh, because I've, I've, I wouldn't I, w I would never be able to teach a young person how to sing because I'm like I don't really know how to. But I, you know, you just you. But 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 actually, 
the singing process is so much to do with music and, and, and teaching music. Um, and the text is fundamental to that, I think. I think there's lots of times where they sang really very, very well there because there was an engagement much more with the start of a word or the, or the shape of a phrase. Because actually, if you... Um, Heaven and earth shall flee away. If you come off the line, your voice packs up. Heaven and earth shall flee away. Heaven and earth shall flee away. You have to keep on the line and keep musical to understand how your voice works. And that's how I've tried to do it and succeed sometimes and not others. Let's try angels and archangels now. Angels and archangels. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. of everything being to the side. Angels and that you're expanding to the side rather than pushing out to the front, that you're expanding to the side. And sing, angels and archangels. Don't uh, make a big thing of the high note. So sing it with going out to the side. Think of expanding. Three, two, three, and. Well done. I think that the perception of width in sound is better than uh, um, out to the front or at that at width to the side, give, giving yourself more room, because it 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 helps. I think to uh, to to relax the way that one feels about about uh, the phrase. Angels and archangels. They have gathered there. I'm terrified of singing that top G, I have to say. But it does help to, to, get, to get that sense of width. It, it helps me. I, I just I, Try it with the piano. And, and, and you hear this quite brassy, focused sound. Respond to that as well. Okay? One, two, three, and... That, that, that can f you feel width and down here, that helps. And I've discovered, because I'm, I'm, I'm a fledgling conductor, that it all helps too if the conductor as a singer is thinking about that too. 
It's so important. I'm sure you, you, you know that anyway. But uh, good. Sit down, please. Thank you so much. Could you give them a round of applause? Because I think. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story about this piece because, because uh, um, there's a, I, in 1991, I wrote a piece for Carl Erickson, who is here, I know, and his Gustavus Adolphus Choir. I wrote a piece called The Modern Man I Sing. It was settings of Walt Whitman. And I said to Carl, I'd like to write a piece for your choir. And he said, fine. He always said, okay, Bob Choker. He would always say both your names. Okay, Bob Choker. So I wrote, it, I wrote a piece and I sent it to him and, and I, I wanted him to pay me for doing it, you know. And I said, I'll write you two more pieces and he said he would pay me. It was my first commission for a, for a, um, a kind of original composition and I felt really good about it. And I sent him and they recorded it, they did a beautiful job with it. And um, uh, I then started this whole process of thinking, how am I going to get this music published? I'm going to try. And I had a couple of pieces published by Hinshaw, a few pieces published by Hinshaw at the time. And um, I uh, sent it to a few people, and John Rutter was one of the people who's, who I sent it to. And John is fantastic. He, if you write to him or if you send him, he always writes straight back. And he's, he's very, very communicative and good in that way. I didn't hear at all. Did, I didn't hear anything from him at all. And I got a letter from Oxford University Press in the Post saying that John Rutter had sent my piece um, and, uh, but unfortunately, that kind of piece wasn't in their, in their, you know, publishing plans at that time. So I thought, what a great thing of him to do, to send that. And I, I didn't really care that he, he didn't, um, they didn't publish it. So I, I called him up and I said, I just had this letter from this guy, OUP, and uh, you, sent, you sent my piece. And he said, yes. He said, are they going to publish it? And I said, no. He said, well, they're stupid, which I thought was rather nice of him. But anyway, so I said, well, what do, you th what do you think I should do? So he said, well, who signed the letter? So I told him, this guy. And he said, well, he's an ambitious guy. Um, he's a nice guy. Invite him out to lunch. So I rang up this chap, and I said, do you want to come out to lunch? And he said, yeah. And we had lunch on the Friday. And he said, so what do you, um, he, we really got on very well. He said, so, so what are you writing at the moment? I said, I'm writing some pieces for the tenor Ben Hepner and the Toronto Children's Chorus. I said, I'm really excited about it. And he said, marvelous. He said, if you, can you bring me something on Monday? I said, sure. And I went home, I hadn't written anything. <laughs> and, and I thought, well, I'd better do something over the weekend. And I found um, that tune, um, and I, 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 I'd written it some years before, and I, I'd written it on the back of, a, of um, a, a table napkin, paper one. And I went through all my books trying to find words that would fit that tune and it was in the bleak midwinter and I thought I thought after that I thought if I'd written those words in the bleak midwinter I wouldn't have been able to do it 
because there are some really great versions. There's a wonderful one by Gustav Holst, and then there's a fantastic one by Harold Dark. And I thought I would never have able, been able to set those words. So I, I put the words to the tune, and I altered it a bit, and I wrote it on, uh, over the weekend, and I took it in on the Monday, and he said, we'll publish this. And, it, and it, it's been quite a, a, a successful piece for my uh, sales. And um, so it was really great, but I kind of think it, I got there by default, really, I com by complete stealth. Um, and so if there are any um, people who are uh, composers here who, who look to uh, get, get their work published, you know, be a little creative in, in, your, in your approach. Um, because, uh, and, and also pester people. Very, very important to pester people. Um, because people like to see that you believe in what you do. And um, that's really important. Uh, be nice about it, but pester them. And make a nuisance of yourself. But anyway, that, uh, that was how that piece... So I've kind of got Carl Erickson to thank, really, for that. And uh, So thank you, Carl, if you're still here, or if you're awake. Um, but... Uh, I think that's all we have time for, and I'm very, very grateful to you folks for coming to listen to me droning on in my English accent, and I'm particularly grateful to these lovely young singers and to Liz for so readily agreeing to um, take part. Thank you so much, Liz, and thank you all very, very much.